Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, it's great to be with you here on Baptism Weekend, and uh, we're going to be going into our time of teaching in just a minute. So inside your program, you'll see that green and white message note sheet. You want to take that out. For those of you joining us online, either at the top or the bottom, depending on the format you're watching, there's a, a link for message notes, and there's like one of three different uh, formats you can use there. But uh, before we go into our time of teaching, just a quick announcement. Uh, this week, is uh, we've been talking about this for a while, but on Thursday night, we're having our next encounter, and uh, so we're very excited about that. Um, the, uh, the last one was amazing in May, and right after that one, I uh, felt like I was just putting in my heart that we're supposed to do an in, uh, in this fall, and we were, the, the topic was the person and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we're very excited about that. We come with great expectations. So I'd say if you call Rocky Peak home, uh, just really, I encourage you to make it a high priority, unless the Lord says not to, to be here, that we're going to have a great time. So last time uh, we came, the place was packed out, um, and so this time we're going to be prepared in case that happens again. We're going to have, uh, we're going to be showing uh, the service outside on the patio. If we need to, we'll be showing it in the ridge as well. Uh, we're going to be opening up uh, about 20 minutes before the service begins, so about 20 to 7. And uh, so if you, you want to come, then that's great. Uh, and, uh, you know, see, see what happens. But we're very excited about that. Also, in preparation for that, we are writing, uh, we have written a, a, a special life group study, but it's not just for life groups, it's for anyone here at Rocky Peak, especially if you're coming to the encounter. It's a four-day study. It's on our website. It's on our app. And so it's kind of designed that you do uh, just as a short, short study on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. There's a brief uh, video from some of our pastors and directors that goes with the study. And this would prepare you. So we're going to do a chronological study of the work of the Holy Spirit from creation, then the nation of Israel, the promise of the prophets that one day God's Spirit would be poured out on all his people, the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus, and then the, the, the day of Pentecost and the, the, the life of the Spirit in the early church. And so when we come together, uh, we won't be teaching a lot on the Holy Spirit. It'd be more responding to what we've learned all week. So it'd be important that you've done that um, because we'll be referring to it, not so much teaching a lot on it. So I'm excited about that. Just want to encourage you to, to be here for that and prepare for that. But if you guys are ready, uh, I'm ready to jump into the time of teaching. You guys ready to go? All right, let's, let's pray. So Father, we're just excited to be here in your house on this day, your day, the resurrection day, I adore you that we celebrate the start of the new creation, and the first step was your resurrection. And uh, so, Father, we come as, as resurrection people, people that have died with you to our old life, risen with you to a new life to the power of the Spirit. And today, we want to come under your leadership and take the next step in our journey as your followers. We pray that you would use this time in your word to open our eyes to see things that are wonderful in your word that transform our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story today begins in downtown San Diego. And uh, I can't remember exactly. I, I think I was probably late 30s, uh, could be early 40s, but I can't remember exactly. But, uh, but the, the reason that I was going downtown was because I'd received a jury summons uh, not for local courts, but for federal court. And I've never done this before. We lived in North San Diego County, which is like Vista, Oceanside, Carlsbad. So it's about an hour down uh, under normal circumstances, but this will be rush hour, first thing of the day. And so I got up very early and 
driving down. Now, this is a, a day and age before Google Maps. Uh, and so, you know, finding things you're not familiar is kind of a little more challenging. So I left early, made it downtown, uh, and I, I found a parking garage near the federal courthouse building. It was like 13 stories high, a kind of a major, major facility. Make my way in and uh, find my way to the jury pool room where I've been summoned. And so when I, when I come in, um, there's probably 100, 200 people in the room already. I got there a little bit early, so as we waited, uh, the room fills up. And uh, I'm thinking, what are the chances that I'm going to be chosen to serve on a jury? Probably not very, very great, uh, fortunately. Right? And, uh, and so, uh, of course, the court, uh, the court representative comes up and at, at 8.39, whatever it was, and kind of briefs us, this is what's going to happen today, thanking us for our service, you know, the, how that all works. And, uh, and so then they begin to call people for the first trial that was going to be on the third story in this particular room. And I'm thinking again, you know, what are the chances? And um, sure enough, they read my name. And uh, so now I'm with this herd of people going out of the room, over to the elevators, waiting my turn, going up to the third floor, heading in. I'm thinking, what are the chances that I'll be chosen to serve on a jury? I mean, I'm a pastor. Like, who wants a pastor on the jury, right? I mean, the odds are you're either a law and order guy, and so the defense hates you, or you're a bleeding heart liberal, and the prosecution doesn't want you. And so I'm thinking, I'm safe, um, but no, I was selected. <laughs> and so now the first step is the judge instructs us we're to go back into the room, the deliberation room, and we need to select a foreman to lead this, this thing. <laughs> and I was selected to be the foreman <laughs> on this case. And so now we're, we're being ushered back into the courtroom for the first time. We're going to see the prosecution, defense, see the young man who's been accused of this crime. We're going to learn about the case. We don't know what the case is. So now I discover that I'm the foreman of a federal drug running case. <laughs> well, today we are... We're continuing our series uh, that we've been in for a while. In fact, I, I look today, this is our 19th message in this series. And so this series is called The Gospel of God. And for those of you who are brand new, just a quick recap. Uh, this, this series is an in-depth study of one of the most important letters ever written, uh, no exaggeration, in the history of the world. And uh, we find it in the second part of our Bible, it's what we call the New Testament. And it's written from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul, or the Apostle Paul. He was a, uh, a violent persecutor at the early church when it started. But about two years after the resurrection, Jesus met Paul. And so he turned from violent persecutor to uh, one of Jesus' official spokesmen, what we call an apostle. And so this is now about uh, 35 years after the resurrection. He's writing a letter to a group of Christ followers uh, in a city where he's never been. It's the capital city of Rome. And so we call this, this letter the letter to the Romans. And in the very first line, he introduces the topic of the letter, which is what he calls the gospel of God. Kind of this epic, big picture, epic story of God's rescue mission of our race. And so today we're going to pick up the storyline where we left off last week in the middle of chapter three. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and turn to chapter three. And uh, there on your note sheet, you see a section called the gospel of God, the evidence. Um, and, and what I want to do before we jump in is just set it up. 
So if you've been here for this series, you know that in the middle of chapter one, Paul launches into the main topic, this gospel of God. And what he says is that we're a rebel race, that early on we rebelled against our creator and we rejected the truth that God had revealed to every one of us through creation and conscience. And as a result, the lights went out on us as a race, and we, we, did, we, we entered what I've called this downward death spiral that starts with spiritual confusion about who God is, leads to sexual confusion about who we are, and finally to social chaos, the breakdown of our whole race. And, and as a result of this rejection of God's leadership, that we are all under the judgments, or what, the, what Paul calls the wrath of God. And then in chapter two, he addresses those who say, hey, I, I agree with your analysis of most of the human race, but I'm different, I'm special. I live by a higher standard, maybe Greek philosophy, uh, maybe especially speaking to his fellow Jews who say, hey, hey uh, we, we get that analysis uh, of the judgment of the race, but we're different, we're the exception. And especially the Jews who saw themselves because of they were God's chosen people, because they'd been given the law of God and lived according to that law, that when it came to the final judgment, they would be exempted or they'd be part of the kingdom. They got it, the rest of the world would be judged, but they would be part of the kingdom. And in chapter two, Paul uh, told them that, hey, it doesn't work that way, that the it's not having the law of God, it's obeying the law of God. And you remember what Jesus said, that the whole law can be summarized with the two commandments, so loving God with all of our heart, loving one another. And he says, and by that standard, that we fall dreadfully short. And so as far as Jews, you're actually more responsible than the Gentiles, because you have more information. And so, so in chapter one and two, Paul has acted like a prosecuting attorney on God's behalf, kind of here's the evidence against the human race. We've all rebelled, we've all rejected the truth in our own way, and that we are all under the judgment of God. And so that's where we pick it up today. And Paul, like, in, like, a, like a prosecuting attorney, is going today kind of present his, his final closing arguments. Like if you're watching Law and Order or something like that, that you know, the evidence is like the, the, the attorney's gonna come and like, here's his final closing argument to the jury. And the way he's gonna do this is Paul is going to, to, uh, to support the claims he has made that we're all under judgment by quoting six or seven passages from the Hebrew scriptures, the very scriptures that the Jews thought meant that they were in to show that actually we're all under this judgment. And so if you have your Bibles, we're gonna pick it up at chapter three and verse nine. If you don't have your Bible, you don't have your app, I figure we have some guests today that there in your notes, you have actually put the verses so you can follow along. And so in verse nine, Paul starts off and he says, what shall we conclude then? And so, again, he's wrapping up his argument. He's presented the evidence in chapter one and two. He says, what shall we conclude then? And he says, do we, and he's speaking of himself as Jews, right? Do Jews, because this is the big concern. The Gentiles know they're wild children, <laughs> but the Jews kind of saw themselves as, hey, we're the exception. And so he's spending extra time talking about the Jews and their confidence in having the law that they would be the exception. He says, do we have any advantage he says, not at all, we've already made the charge that both Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the what? What's he say next? The power of sin. So let's talk about this. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to come back. What Paul is saying is not only have we all rebelled against God, 
Not only have we all committed high treason against the king, not only have every one of us specific crimes on our rap sheet, so to speak, but there's something even deeper than that. That when we rebelled against our creator, that something broke in the human heart. That when we chose to follow sin, we came under the power of sin. So that as a race, not only do we commit specific crimes, but there's something broken about us at the core of our being. That we are not good, that we're broken, that we're rebellious, that we're evil. There's something deeply evil about our race, right? And so he's going to now support this claim with these six or seven quotations from the Old Testament. And so he says in uh, verse 10 is where they start. He says, as it is written. So he's, that's Paul's way of introducing uh, Old Testament quotations. And uh, he's going to introduce, he said, what I want to do is I want to focus on the first quotation and the last quotation, because these frame up the big picture of, his, of what he's, his argument. And then we'll come back to the middle quotations that more kind of get in the weeds that deal with the specifics of what this looks like. So the first quotation is from Psalm 14, uh, the first three verses. Some scholars think Ecclesiastes 7.20 may be involved. And by the way, all these references are there on your note sheet, the little references, and so in the order that we're gonna go over them if you want to check it out later. But uh, that's why I say six or seven quotations. If, it's just, if he's just quoting Psalm 14, then, then it becomes six. If it's Psalm 14 and Ecclesiastes 720, it becomes seven. But anyway, so he says, uh, so here's a quote from, chapter, from uh, Psalm 14. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Now, this is interesting because back in chapter one, remember what Paul said is when we rejected the truth about God, that we started this downward spiral and the first step was spiritual confusion. Remember that? That we worship things in creation, not the creator, idolatry. So what Paul says, no one is seeking God. He's not saying that we're not religious. We're a very religious race. Uh, in our culture today, many people would say, well, I'm very spiritual. What Paul is saying is, yeah, we're seeking a God, but it's a God of our own making. It's not the real God. It's like we create our own gods that reflect who we are and we're basically worshiping ourselves. So he says, all have turned away, in verse 12, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so not that we can't do any good things, but that our core were not good, that we're driven by selfishness, we're driven by self-interest, we're, we're driven by this desire that we would be gone. And so that's the first, the first quote. And then let's go to the last quote. It's in verse 18. And he says, this is from Psalm 36. And he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is something that's often said, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Or the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, the first step towards being a wise person is a fear of the Lord. Now the question is, what does the fear of the Lord mean? So when you study this, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean like we're like a child who's been abused, just afraid the parent's gonna go off unpredictably. It's not that sort of fear. The fear of the Lord, if you study it, has to do with recognizing that, the, that God is God and I am not. 
and that therefore I come under his leadership in my life. And if, there, if I don't, there are consequences for that. And so for example, in Proverbs, it says, fear God and fear the king because both can bring destruction rapidly on you. And so Paul says, this is the core sin of the human race is that there's no fear of God. We've rejected his leadership and we've kind of become our own gods, like he said in chapter one. Now, between this first and last quote, we have four other quotes um, that talk about, okay, so what does it look like to be part of a rebel race that is under the power of sin, that is actually enslaved to sin, that, that cannot fix ourselves? And he's going to focus on quotations that focus first on what does is, what is the sin look like in the human race from our mouths, what we speak, our words, and then secondly, from our actions. And so in verse 13, if you go back to the middle, he's, these are, he's going to put together three quotes from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, and Psalm 10. And he says, their throats are open graves. In other words, that when we speak, it leads to death. Like in Proverbs, it says that the tongue has the power of life and death. And so he says, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is under their lips, and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So one of the ways that our fallen sinful nature shows itself is in the way we talk, the way we use our words, to hurt, to destroy you think of gossip, you think of deceit, you think of lies, you think of manipulation, you think of harsh criticism, right? The verbal violence, abuse, verbal abuse. He says, this is what characterizes our race. And then he goes on and he says, uh, he's gonna talk not just about verbal violence now, but physical violence, their feet. So notice he's, he's kind of followed the body. He says their throats, their tongues, their lips, their mouths. Now we come to their, their feet are swift to shed blood, a violent race. And he says, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. You think of the, the, the Hebrew uh, Old Testament concept of peace and shalom, like right relationships. So, sh- like, so, so for example, in Israel right now, if there was no war between, going on between the Palestinians and Israel, um, there would be a cessation of hostility, but there would not be shalom, right? Like shalom is right relationship. And, and Paul says, as you look at our, this is the story of our race, is that there's no shalom, that there's conflict wherever you turn in the human race, right? And so now, he, so he says, uh, he says, so now he's going to begin to wrap up his argument. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, and he's really speaking to his fellow Jews because it's for them that's the hardest in understanding uh, that they too are under the judgment of God. Because again, they think they have the law, they think they're the chosen people and so on. So he's going to keep coming back to that. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. In other words, Jews. And he says, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. This is very interesting. In the Roman court system, when you were on trial, you'd be presenting your own defense. And once you presented, you're done with your defense before the judge, you would put your hand over your mouth. And this is the way you'd say, I'm done. My defense is done. Now, if the judge thought you should be done and you weren't stopping, 
he would give orders to, a, he would give a signal to a court, a court official who would come up and they would put their hand over your mouth and say, you're done, right? That we've heard enough. I don't need to hear any more. And so Paul is saying that like, like we're before the courts of heaven, but we're for God. And he says, what the law does, it doesn't show the path for justification that you're actually right. What the law does is it just reveals how broken and sinful we are. And so that the end result is that the hand is over the mouth, that we're all accountable before God. And he goes on in the next verse, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Again, speaking to his fellow Jews, rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. He'll pick up this theme in detail when we get to chapter seven, but what he'll say is, hey, the law is good. It was a beautiful gift. The law was designed to lead us to life. Here's what it looks like to love God. Here's what it's like to love people. But the reality is when you bring the law in contact with a rebel race, the law just reveals how broken and evil we are and unable to keep it and how we are under the power of sin. So he says the law doesn't, it doesn't become a path to life. It actually, though it's beautiful in itself, it becomes what reveals to us the depth of our depravity or our fallenness as a race, right? And so with that, Paul wraps up. It's almost like he's a prosecuting attorney again. This is his final statement. He's laid out the evidence in chapters one and two. He's supported it from the scriptures now in his summation, these six or seven passages, and he lays the case to rest. And the verdict is that we are all under the judgment of God as a race. And so what I want to do today is I want to just highlight one big picture principle that flows out of not only this passage, but the first three chapters, um, and then come back and ask one important question. So there on your note sheet, you have a section that's called the gospel of God, the verdict, right? And so let's talk about the one big picture principle, and then we're going to come back and see how we respond to that. And here's, here's, the, here's the principle, that something is seriously wrong with us. That's the conclusion. Something like as a race, we don't need a tune-up, we need a new engine, right? That it's not like a little bit of tweak. There's something simply broken with us. Now this is interesting because uh, often as human beings, the way we tend to judge ourselves is by one another, right? So am I a good person? Paul says, hey, there's no one good. And we say, wait a second, I think I'm pretty good, right? And we, we compare ourselves with one another to decide if we're good. But what we miss is what true goodness really looks like. So for example, there in your note sheet, there's a, a passage from next week's passage we're looking at from Romans 3.23 where Paul sums us up and he says, all have sinned and fall short of the what? Now, this is a very famous verse. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this passage. But when we quote it or we think about it, we tend to focus on the first part, right? All have sinned, and we tend to agree with that, right? Like, we know this. We've all sinned. Uh, like, if I say, like, how, how many, that rings true to you. We've all sinned. Can you all, right. So, for example, if I wanted to clear out this whole building, it'd be very easy, all I can say is we're going to stand up, we're going to, we're going to separate into groups of six or eight, and I'd like you to all share your 10 worst sins. 
that you've ever committed, right? And we'd have like a stampede out of here, right? And this last night's service, they said, okay, starting with you. I said, if that happens, no one's leaving. <laughs> but, so we're aware of this, right? We're aware of this. That, yeah, we've all done things that we're ashamed of. And so in Paul says, we've all sinned. But, but I want you to know, Paul is saying such, so much more than we've all committed specific crimes against the king. He says, all have sinned and fall short of what? So what's he talking about? Well, this is the way the story goes. We were created to be like God. We were created in his image. We were created to reflect the glorious character of God. You and I were designed for glory. And this is what we lost so long ago, the garden. And just quick sidebar, this is why Jesus has come. Not just to forgive us, but to restore the glory. And so, so what happens is we tend to judge ourselves by ourselves. We tend to say, well, I'm not like Hitler, right? So I'm pretty good. Well, the standard of goodness is God. Because we were created to be like God. And you say, well, what does that look like? What, what would it look like to be like God, but as a human being? Well, that would look like Jesus, you say, well, no one can do that. That's an unrealistic standard. That's the point. That's the whole point. That's what we were created to be. And when you say, when you compare yourself to Jesus, you say how far we have fallen, right? Especially before we come to Jesus and have the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And so this is interesting because what Paul's description of the human race, something is seriously broken, and not just broken, but something is wrong, something is evil. At the core, there's something evil about us. And this is really at odds with the worldview of our current culture, isn't it? In fact, the worldview that we have inherited, kind of our Western worldview, What's popular in the media, what's popular in the news, what's popular in academia is that we're basically good. The problem with human beings is not human beings, but with our environment, with our circumstances. And this worldview has deep roots that go all the way back to the Enlightenment. And I want to give you just a couple examples. So before the Enlightenment, of course, we've got the Catholic Church and Protestants, and the worldview is there's something deeply wrong with the human race. We call it original sin, right? That's the worldview. When the Enlightenment comes along, people begin to question that. And I want to just give you three examples of, of very influential philosophers or uh, uh, ideologies that have brought us where we are today. Like the first example, probably the most influential philosopher of the Enlightenment was the Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So probably a lot of you probably heard of that, right? And so Rousseau, what he came along, he said the problem with hu the humanity, the problem with the human race is not human beings. The problem is civilization. He said before civilization came along, he coined this phrase, we were, we, we were, uh, we were uh, noble savages. But what happens is we're born into this corrupt civilization that corrupts us. 
And so what we need to do is get back to nature. So that's 18th century, right? Well, let's jump ahead to the 19th century. One of the most famous philosophers, most influential thinkers of the 19th century is Karl Marx. Of course, Karl Marx is an atheist, but what Karl Marx says is, no, the problem with the human race is not the human race. The problem is our economic systems. So he says, what you have in society is you have certain people, a minority, who own what he described as the means of production. So they, they own the factories, they have the capital, and he said, so, so these people use their power to oppress everyone else and create a culture that benefits, gets privileged to them and oppresses everyone else. So the problem is not human nature, the problem is the economic system. So he said, so what we need to do is we need to have a revolution and we need to destroy the people that are in economic control, get rid of the capitalists, and then we'll redistribute the wealth so we all share and share alike. And he says, and this will inter- introduce a new era of human flourishing. Right? So how's that worked out? Right, yeah. Okay, so let's jump ahead to our century, right? So one of the most influential, in the academia, this, in the, it doesn't matter what college campus, well, maybe it's some Christian colleges, maybe, depending on the Christian college. But secular college, right? What is the, the prevailing worldview today in secular? It, it flows out of what we call critical theory. And in some ways, this is a descendant of Karl Marx in certain ways, not in other ways, But in critical theory, it says, what's the problem with human uh, culture is that some people have more power than other people. Those in power oppress those not in power. But it's not just economic, like Karl Marx. It's in many other ways. And, And so critical theory gets worked out in all these different segments of culture. So it, like it's, Uh, Critical race theory would say the problem is racial. Those in power oppress those without. It works out in queer theory. Those that are heterosexual oppress those who are different than that. It works out in third third wave feminism. It works out in post-colonialism. But it's the same basic concept that there are those who have power and those who don't, those in power oppress those who don't. So what's the solution? We tear down those in power, we redistribute power, and that will lead to a more just society. But what I want you to catch, whether it's Rousseau that has, we're so influenced in ways we don't even begin to understand, whether it's Rousseau, whether it's Marx, whether it's critical theory, or many others I didn't mention, the assumption is all the same. The assumption is the problem with the human race is not inside of us, it's outside of us. And if you could change the outside, the beauty of the inside would come out. And in opposition to that, the Christian worldview, the worldview of Jesus, the worldview of the Apostle Paul, the worldview of the New Testament, the worldview of the Old Testament, the Hebrew, is no, there's something fundamentally broken in us that as a result of our rebellion against God, the lights have gone on, we're all under the power of sin, and it doesn't matter what system you run, we're gonna mess it up. 
So if you look at our current culture today, what do you constantly hear from politicians, from academia, from media and all? The constant message is that the problem is outside of us. So what does that look like? Hey, the problem with the human race is educational. That we need to have better education or a different kind of education. Or the problem is economic. Between the rich and the poor, you need to redistribute well. Or the problem is social. Maybe the problem is racism. Or the problem is privilege. Or the problem is prejudice. Or maybe the problem is, uh, is, is something else, but it's always outside of ourselves. And catch this, in many of these theories, there is some truth to it. You know, one of the things I often say is the best lie is the one with the most truth. Stop and think about it. If someone's lying to you, and they're always a liar, and everything they say is a lie, it's pretty easy to figure out. That guy's a liar, he always lies. But have someone come to you and tells you 10 things that are true, and the 11th is false. It's hard to discern that. And this is how the enemy always works. He tells you truth, he tells you truth, he tells you truth. And when he's got you going, he inserts the lie. It's not that these things that, like, it's not that, well, is racism an issue? Yeah, racism's an issue, sure. Every culture that's ever been has racism. Of course it's an issue. It's a human issue because there's something broken with us. Well, what about this? Do the rich oppress the poor? The rich have always oppressed the poor. Have they ever used their riches for advantage and to oppress? Yes, for sure. Have the strong ever, do the strong oppress the weak? Of course they do. That's what our fallen race does. Would it be better if more people had equal opportunity or more? Of course, there's there's some truth to these things. But when you take some truth and you make it the truth, it becomes a lie. And the reality is, there's something deeply broken in the human race. And so we come to this, we come to this section of Romans chapter 3, and wow, this verdict is heavy, isn't it? You read that drumbeat, there's none righteous, no, not one. Together they become worthless, a poison of asp, and the feet are, I mean, it's just like this, like, wow, this is heavy. It kind of takes us back to the story we started the day with about me being called to San Diego, ending up serving on a jury for a federal drug running case. And I don't have time today, maybe another time, but I don't have time today to go into all the details, all the days of deliberation, all the facts of that case, what the accusation was, even what the, even what the, even what the verdict was. But the reason I told it is because I don't know if you've ever found yourself uh, sitting on a jury, and especially if it's on a criminal case of a major accusation. But if you have, you know this, the weight that is upon you as a jury. And the weight, if you're the foreman, you feel. Because your job is to get everyone to come to a place of decision And when someone's life is hanging in the balance, 
And there are serious charges. In this, in this case, a 19-year-old young man is either going to go to prison for a long time or be let off and go into the military in three months. You feel the weight of that decision. And if you've ever seen a show like that on TV, if you've ever been in an actual jury room, if you've been in a place where you've been deliberating and you, you watch that jury come out and you know that that jury has found this person defendant guilty and it's gonna ruin the rest of their life, it's gonna, it's gonna make a huge impact. It's a very solemn moment when the bailiff walks up to the foreman and has delivered that verdict. Well, men and women, that's where we are in the letter of Romans. The Paul has sat down and he's delivered the verdict and it is heavy. The verdict is that every one of us in our own ways, it looks different for every person. Every one of us has rebelled against our creator. Every one of us has lived as if God doesn't exist. Every one of us has created gods in our own image. Every one of us has rejected the truth that we've known about what's right and wrong. And as a result, whether we're a wild child, a good kid, or a religious kid, we are all guilty before the court of heaven. It's a heavy moment. And so the question I have for you, I have, I have one question today. And there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the gospel of God, one key question. And here's the question that I have for you. How will you respond to this verdict? I was thinking about this yesterday as I was kind of doing my final preparation and going over my notes. I was thinking that in a church like this, so the size we are, the three different services, those uh, people, the three services online, my, my hunch is that there's a, we have a, um, a kind of a spectrum of spiritual backgrounds in this, in this room this weekend. And even more so because we're doing baptisms and sometimes people come that, um, you know, just to, to witness a family baptism or thing like that, and they wouldn't might normally be here. So my assumption is probably most of us here have, have come to the place where we, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, we believe what Paul is saying is true, that we're guilty, and we've kind of accepted that verdict. But, but my hunch is, is that there are perhaps many of us here that, that have never really been presented this evidence that we've been, in chapter one and two, it comes to a head today in chapter three. And my hunch is there's at least three different responses to this evidence, to this verdict, right? And so my, I, think, I think one response, like if you've never given your life to Jesus and you don't see yourself as a believer, like one response would be to reject the evidence flat out. And this is a common thing that happens when the gospel of God is shared, there are many people who say, I just don't buy it. I don't buy the whole story. I, I don't believe, I'm, I'm a naturalist. I'm a scientific materialist. Uh, I, I believe that everything we see in this world is a result of, of uh, billions of years of random, uh, random accidents. And, and I don't believe there's a natural conscience in the human race. I believe that right and wrong are social constructs that we create. So I, I don't buy it. I don't buy the Bible as the word of God. I don't buy that there's a creator. I don't buy the conscious thing. Uh, I don't believe that Israel was a chosen nation. I don't believe that Jesus was a Messiah. Uh, historical person, yes. 
maybe died uh, under Roman rule in an unjust thing, but that's it. That's the story. I don't believe any of this is true. And that's, that's one response, right? That's one response. And many people make that response. I think a second response to this evidence would be to the person who says, I agree with part of the story. Um, that, yeah, I, I believe, I do believe there's a creator. I look around this incredible creation, the complexity of it, the beauty of it, the order of it. I, I, there's got to be a creator. And I, I do believe in the sense of conscience. I mean, there's some things that are right and some things are wrong. And I think we all know that. And I believe, but, but you know, I don't, really, I don't really know if I can buy this Jesus part of it. I, I think that all the religions kind of have certain parts of the truth. They're like an elephant and each one's when we're all pulling a different part. And then we, you know, like blind men with the elephant. And then, and so we, we, we just think our way is the only way, but I think they all have some truth to it. And, and honestly, um, I, I'm not sure the situation is as dire as Paul puts it out. Like I know some good people and I'm a pretty good person. I'm not Hitler. And, and so I, you know, um, I think that if there is a God, and I think there is, I think that, that we're, well, he's, kind of, he's going to be grading much easier than you're making it out to be. And uh, I'm willing to take my chances. And I think there's a lot of people that would respond to the verdict in that way. But then there's a third person that's in a very different place. That as Paul has gone over the evidence the last few weeks, you've been here, maybe you're here today. It's even happening today as we go over. It just rings true. Hey, there is a creator. We do know right from wrong. We've all violated. We've all rebelled. We've all done things that are wrong. And, and that for whatever reason, this just seems really true to you. It's interesting because when I was on my way in this morning, I, I kind of listened to the Bible through a year, you know, on the audio thing. And so I just had it on. It was in 1 Corinthians, and Paul says that the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, which is what he would put response number one and two in. He says, but to those of us who are called, it is the power of God. Now, one of the things that Jesus Apostle Paul, all the apostles taught is that, is that for us to be, to be switched from a rebel to a child of God, that takes the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to that truth. And so there may be some of us here today, or maybe you're joining us online, that in a way you really can't even understand that this truth is like breaking in on you like giant waves breaking in on the shores of your life and your conscience. And you sense that what Paul is saying is true. Maybe you've never realized it before, but you realize you're part of this rebel race. And you too have rebelled against your creator. And that if the final judgment were today, if you were to die on the way home, you stood before him, there would be a hand put over your mouth. You're accountable, and there's no, no, no excuse. Your eternity is hanging in the balance. And so if that's you, the question is, well, what do I do? 
well, this is what Paul is going to talk about next week. And he'll say, that's what this epic gospel of God is all about. Is that believe it or not, for a race full of rebels, that God actually became part of this race. And we see what happens when God becomes one of us. We beat the heck out of him and nail him to a tree. That's what a rebel race does when the king comes incognito. And what Paul will say is that death wasn't an accident. That death came to make atonement for our sins. And it's the only way out. And not only did he come that we could be forgiven, but he came so that we, the power of sin could be broken in our lives. That we could receive the gift of his spirit and be changed supernaturally from the inside out by the work of the spirit. We're going to be talking about that encounter this week. And that we could rise with him for a new life in this life and the next. And so the evidence is in. The verdict has been handed to the bailiff. It's been read out loud. Every mouth is stopped. Every one of us is accountable. And the only question is, how will we respond to the verdict? Let's pray together. So our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I just want to give you a chance to reflect on this question. And I know for many of us here, we're followers of Jesus. And this is just a reminder of the gospel and just a beautiful reminder of what God has done to rescue us. But for those of us here, they're saying, boy, that, that sounds really true. And I, I want in. I want, I want to be forgiven. I want to be renewed. I want the gift of his spirit. I'm ready to lay down my rebellion. I'm ready to follow Jesus. And during this next song, we're all going to be singing. It's a beautiful song about God's forgiveness in Christ. And I would just encourage you in the quietness of your own heart to ask Jesus into your life to forgive you, to renew you, to send his spirit. You don't have to remember all the right words. If you're sincere, the Lord will hear. He sees your heart. And you just call out to him. And later in Romans, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's all you need to do. You've heard the message. You know the conviction. You know the facts. You know the judgment that's over. All you need to do is call on the name of the Lord and ask him into your life. Surrender your life to him. Ask him for this gift of new life. And rise with him to the new life he died to give you. And so we pray that during this time of worship, you'd meet us as we reflect on the beauty of this epic gift that you've given through your own life and death and resurrection. We pray this in your name. Amen.